Well, it's good to be with you. It's um, always good to be with your church and to be able to spend time with uh, Jordan and to see what the Lord's doing in your, in your church and in your lives. Um, and it's also good when I get to see Jordan, I get to see Jordan's in-laws. Miss Tracy's mom and dad are here. And uh, I'm going to actually use Miss Tracy's dad as an illustration, all right, later, all right, so just hang on. Now, most of you are young, and so I need you, we're going to be looking at a, a, at a pretty grown-up thing tonight. We're going to look at what a Christian does when they feel brokenhearted and when things happen that are difficult, and not just once, but repeatedly. So that's a pretty grown-up thought, and, and you may not be a broken-hearted person. But I want you to listen, not just for today, but for when you're older, and I want you to try really hard to, um, to help the grown-ups to see how to behave, all right? We're going to look at the theme that Jordan gave me from 1 Peter, and that is on the Christian life, distress, tried tested, um, hardships, and yet, you know, gloriously happy in Christ. Um, I think we could say it this way. The Christian life is a life in which there are, you know, different experiences, and and we we could call them seasons of life. And I don't mean old and middle-aged, you know, and young. I, I mean, sometimes it's like springtime, and everything in your Christian life seems to be in bloom. Every Bible study you go to, you just come home, you know, and you say, man, that was so good. And the people who sit next, next to you might think, uh, I didn't get that much out of it. And every, you know, every book you read and every church you attend, and not just yourself, you know, in the springtime, but people that you've been witnessing to, it's like, Every conversation that God gives you an opportunity for, it seems to bear fruit within your home, your marriage, your kids, your church. Everywhere you look, it's springtime. And there are times like that for the Christian, but there are also times that are the opposite, where everything you thought was vibrant and alive seems to wither like a a winter time. And there are times where in your home things happen that break your heart. And parents can't sleep at night because they, they just can't shake the concern they have for their kids. And so you pray and you try to go to sleep. And then you pray again, you know, and you say things to God like, Okay, God, I've said everything I know to say. Can I go to sleep now? I don't know what else to pray. And there are times where the church seems to just be flourishing and Christ-likeness And a single-mindedness is there. And then there are other times where no matter what you do, you don't know what has changed, but everywhere you look, things seem to wither. And there, of course, are times in the Christian life where you look in the mirror and you're the most discouraging thing you know. You, You see areas of life that you thought were wonderfully brought under the rule of Christ. And now you look at yourself and you think, why has this come back? And why is my pace so slow? And why are doubts rising up? And and why am I cold toward the one that is altogether lovely? And when that happens over an extended period of time, I would call it a season, a wintry season. One of my favorite authors named Samuel Rutherford wrote from prison during one of those seasons... And he said this, he, he, he said, you know, there are times when everything is dark, but you can still gather gold by moonlight. In other words, as a Christian, there are things the Lord has placed in front of you in the word. There are provisions in the, in the new covenant that you can, even in a dim, dark moment, you can lay your hands on and you can live on. So Rutherford's words are encouraging, but I mean, that's just Rutherford. I think we're going to need more than Rutherford. And that brings us to Peter and what he said in his first letter in the first chapter. Let me get you to turn there if you have your Bible. 
We are going to jump around a little tonight. I'm using the theme from 1 Peter, but I'm, I'm going to be a bad example to the other speakers because we're going to spend some time out of 1 Peter. And Peter's just going to kind of set our scene, all right? Peter writes to Christians at a time where it certainly is a dark season. And he writes in verse 6 and 7 of the first chapter, having said so many wonderful things about what God has done for this group of people, he then says this, in this, in these happy things, and we'll come back to them later, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, wonderful passage from Peter. And Peter, like the other writers of the Bible, are so realistic. And if there's any place in life that we have to be kind of ruthlessly realistic, it has to be Christianity. There is no room in a Christian's life, you know, outside of the walls of a church... For a sentimental Christianity that's, that's based on nice thoughts that are not rooted in reality. It's just a wor the world out there and the world in here is just too ruthless for you to survive on that. So we want to be very realistic. When Peter talks about the trials and the sorrows of a Christian, he is talking about something that shows up all through the Bible. And particularly in the New Testament, we find it so many times. We find other believers writing about it, like James in chapter 1, like Paul so many times, speaking about the fact that the, that the Christian will pass through seasons of terrible sorrow and hardship, and yet they can rejoice. And we have a number of common elements. In other words, wherever you look in the New Testament, when the writer deals with this subject at any length, they tend to kind of give you the same basic tools to grab hold of. And we find them in Peter. And so for the sake of time, we're only going to look at Peter and what he says in chapter 1. So let's back up and see the context of that verse. And it's in verse, we'll start with verse 3 and read down to verse 9. And we could keep going, but we're going to have to kind of limit ourselves. So let's look at the big picture in which Peter sets these words about suffering. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though... You have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's, let's kind of just pick out some of the common elements. Like other writers, Peter generally hits these high points when talking about suffering. If you are going to find in Christ strength to endure, but much more than that, if Christ isn't just going to be your strength on the battlefield, but your song, what do you have to grab hold of? Well, Peter gives us a few things. Let me just list four quickly. First of all, he points you back to how it all started. And that really is encouraging for a believer. It didn't start with me. It didn't start with my faith. It didn't even start with my cry of despair. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because his 
According to his great mercy, he caused you to be born again, to be brought to life. He woke you up. He pulled you out of a grave. And with, with eyes that are open and with a heart that was warm and, and alive and receptive and breaking the chain on your will, he showed you Christ as he really is. And suddenly, do you remember, Christian, when that happened to you, suddenly all those sermons and all those religious words and those songs that you sang meant something now. So look back at what God has caused He has birthed you again to a living hope by Christ's resurrection. Second, don't just look behind. Look ahead. There is an inheritance. It is imperishable. It cannot be lost. It cannot be defiled. It doesn't devalue. And it is reserved for you. Think of what's coming. When we see Christ with every other believer, and he is clothed in his glory. And this old creation is laid aside like, a, like an old shirt. It's got holes in it. And your mom says, you can't wear it anymore. And she tosses it in the trash can. And a new creation is made. There is an inheritance coming. Then he says, look at God's activity in you. Between this beginning and this glorious ending, God is protecting you by his power, he says. Which is daily received through your faith. That is, as you continue to cling to God desperately, as you continue to trust him. What does Ricky Couple say? Stick to the Lord like a cucklebur, you know? As you won't let go of the hope that Christ gave you, God is at work in you, protecting and even using the trials, the most heartbreaking things of life, which really are heartbreaking, to provide proof that you have that same precious faith that every other believer has had. Fourth, look at the ultimate purpose of everything. What's it all for? You will, he says, be fully rescued, that full and final salvation in every sense of the word. I think we, you know, when we, as Christians, we look back on what God has done. I mean, the Old Testament believer tended to look forward the coming of the Messiah, you know, the payment of our sins, the Lamb of God, one day. While they look backwards, so much was ahead of them. And it's easy for us as believers, as New Testament believers, we look back on what God did in the Old Covenant. We look back on what God did in the New Testament. And you might think that the best things that, have, that God does are all in the past. Now, have you considered that Compared to what God will yet do, the past will pale in comparison as, as inexpressibly wonderful, immeasurably wonderful as it is. He takes our humanity on himself. He obeys in our place. He dies for us. He becomes our mediator, our representative, the God-man. But one day, all the wonderful beginnings will be made complete. I mean, it's great to kind of be able to stick your finger in the dessert while mom's making it, you know? I'm not talking just to kids. I'm talking to husbands. So someone's making a cake in the kitchen. She leaves for a moment. Swoosh. I get the icing off the edge, but it's good. So I get another swoosh. And then there's a finger, you know, right through the middle of the cake icing. So then I smooth it over just in time. Do you ever do that? That's nice. But it's better to have the cake. God says that what he has begun in us and giving us his Holy Spirit is just a, a foretaste or it's a down payment. And there is so much more to come. So we look at what is coming. There is the completion of everything God has begun, of everything the Father planned in eternity past, of everything that Christ purchased, and of everything that the Holy Spirit has come to make yours. But also, of course, there is the glory of Christ where you and me completed. Ephesians says, will be forever and ever this living billboard, if we could use modern language, of the kindnesses of God. So that for billions of years, anybody in the new creation that wants to know how kind God can be, they just have to look 
at one of the believers. Well, that's what Peter gives us as the general set of realities that you have to live on if you want to really endure hard times. Now, here's where I want to kind of jump back to the Old Testament. What I want us to do for the rest of our time together is I want us to think about one specific type of sorrow and the particular danger the Christian feels in that time of sorrow and how we're supposed to act, particularly how you should pray. So while we're still looking at the hardships of the Christian that Peter talked about and those great realities, look behind, look ahead, consider the goal of it, look what God's doing right now, I want to talk about one specific danger in sorrow, all right? And maybe I can say it this way. There is an extraordinary danger that comes to the believer when sorrows for the Christian are frequent, intense, and continuing. There are times in the Christian life where the heart of the Christian is broken in a way that the heart of an unbeliever is never broken, and the unbeliever does not understand it. And they look at the Christian, and maybe they think, I thought you people were supposed to be happy. But here you are, you know, heavy-hearted. So I'm going to, I told you I'd use Mr. Steve as an example. When I was still a teenager, right, before the gray, I don't know where Jordan's gray is. I'm, I'm suspicious, but we won't say anything, all right? When I was a teenager, 19, I went to a men's prayer meeting on Saturday morning. This was about the time that God was taking me from a self-righteous, um, misbehaving person that said, I said a sinner's prayer, so I'm fine, to really saving me. And I went to a, a men's prayer meeting, and Steve was leading it. And it was, a, it was a group of older men. I was by far the youngest. And it was Saturday morning, so I thought it was a great sacrifice, you know, to give up a Saturday morning. And I remember that Steve said a few things. I don't remember what he said. And then we started to pray. But here's what I remember. It was a pretty difficult time in the church. And Steve was on staff. He was one of the pastors. And I was peeking during the prayer meeting. And Steve wept through the entire prayer meeting. And there was a puddle on the floor underneath him. That wasn't the only time I attended the meeting. I attended a few more times every time. And I thought, here's a guy that's breaking his heart over things that I, I don't even know about. How can you break your heart like that and yet be happy? Well, there are times where we see things that break our heart. There are, there are times where there's an intense sorrow, not your normal sorrow, where it's like in the Christian life, it's not that you went through a hard time. It's that there's every, every day, it's just... It's like a long line of sorrows at your front door and you just wake up to hear another one and it doesn't end quickly. It just goes on and on and you, you, know, you wonder, what, where is God? And here's the particular danger. We begin to hear the mocking taunt of our enemy, of the world, and even in your own heart, your own doubts. And so there's... There's a list of accusations that start coming, for example, against God. You say you're a Christian. You say you're a child of this God. But what father lets his kid go through things like this? I mean, once, twice. But this is ongoing. You know, this is horrible. This is, in some ways, there, you know, there are times where you can't even tell anybody what's going on. How, how can you say that God is everything he said he is in the Bible? What about the Christian life? The abundant life? It doesn't look abundant right now. So there are accusations against God. There's accusations against you. And, of course, the problem is there's always enough truth in them that your own conscience kind of joins the accuser. Well, look at you. You have been inconsistent. Your sin is part of the problem. You have been cold toward Christ. You've doubted Christ. You've been a bad picture of a Christian. No wonder God doesn't hear your prayers week after week after week as sorrow after sorrow comes. 
Because seeing the kind of person you are, would you answer your prayers if you were God? Or you could think of it this way. If a really, really godly, holy woman or man prayed the prayers that you're praying in this situation, don't you think God would have acted by now? So it's you. God has kind of abandoned you. Over the last year, um, I would say it has been one of the saddest years of my Christian life. A combination of so many different things. Um, Things happening in the church that, um, you know, by and large, so many encouraging things. But some things happening in the church that are heartbreaking. And then things happening in churches far away that I have, you know, friends in and connections with and um, I, I was involved with trying to help, and it just got worse and worse. And you know, and you begin to ask the Lord, "Are you going to ever, you know, are you going to ever stretch out your arm?" And then there's things that happen in your own home that break your heart, and then there's things in me, which of course is in in many ways the most painful to see your selfishness contributed to so much, and. These sorrows were pretty intense and they were frequent, just one phone call after the next, you know, where you just don't want to answer your phone and, and then, you know, and they just went on and on. And so here's what I found. At first, it was easy to give the right answer to the taunting accusations. I would say, no, God is not at fault here. God warned us about the sorrows of sin. You know, and and so you have all these biblical answers, and they're true, and it's right to lay them in front of the lies. But when it goes on for months, and you're confused, and you what you find, I think, is that that mocking doubt in your heart and those taunting voices you tend to hear, you know, in your soul, they're not so easy to push away and. So you say the same truths, but then you start to think, am I just making excuses for a God that has abandoned me? So it can be very dangerous to go through intense periods of repeated sorrows, which endure for a long time, and the taunting, mocking questions of the enemy can take root. And, you know, you can do a couple of things wrong, you can eventually find yourself joining the liar and your voice, instead of his, starts to say things about God. Like the people in Malachi's day. God says, I have loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? That's no longer the enemy. It's your voice. I remember one time late at night sitting up and kind of everything kind of crashing at once and seeing myself and and just, I, I don't, normally get too weepy, but just crying and crying and crying. It was about three in the morning and saying to God, I have asked you to help in a certain situation for years. And then these other things, and it seems like you don't listen. Is it because it's me asking? And, you know, so all these questions. And I finally came to a place where I said this in my prayer. Whatever happens, God, I will not add my voice to the accuser. I will not. Repeat what he says about you. But what do you do? That takes us to Psalm 119. Of course, the Psalms are full of um, many examples of the heart being broken. And wrenched from a broken heart is, you know, is this psalm that cries out to God, that is very honest with God, maybe in ways that shock us, and then finds rest in God and joy. But I wonder if you've ever thought about Psalm 119 as a wonderful place to go when we find the mocking lies of the enemy to be hard to shake loose. Psalm 119, of course, is the longest psalm in the Bible, and it's a psalm that is all about the Bible. But is it really? It is a psalm that talks 176 verses about the Bible, but it is really about the believer and God. And the response of the heart. Here's what I mean. 176 verses. Only four, the first three and another, are general statements about the Bible. How happy is the person? 
How blessed is the life that walks in God's law, that seeks him with all their, their heart, you know, that, that doesn't sin against this God. I mean, that's the happiest life. Those are, those are general statements. Four verses of the 176 are general statements about God's word. 172 verses are direct prayers to God. It is a believer in every condition of life with an open Bible and their faces toward God. Look at verse 41 and 42 in Psalm 119. And we will follow the psalmist into his prayer closet during a time when the mocking voices are hard to shake. All right? And then we'll be done. Verse 41 and 42. May your loving kindnesses also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. Now, there's a connection between these two, and the connection between the verses in Psalm 119 are not always obvious. Some verses seem to just stand alone. But I think these two are wonderfully connected. But here's how. 41 is a, is a prayer that is based or that is required in a believer's heart because verse 42 describes a certain situation. So verse 42 is the reason verse 41 must exist. Let's look at that. Verse 42. So then, or so that, I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust your word. The word reproaches is the same word that the Hebrews used for taunt, for mocking. So here's a believer in some situation where the world, you know, or the, or, or the liar, the doubts in his own mind or his own conscience are rising up and mocking his hope or taunting his claims about his God and who he is. How do you find an answer for that in those seasons when those are very difficult to shake? Well, verse 41 is a great model. What do I do in the present moment when the taunting won't go away and I fear that I'm just making excuses for a God that has abandoned me? Verse 41. Look at the prayer. May your loving kindnesses also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word, so, so that I will have an answer for the one that taunts me. Let's look carefully at verse 41 and see what exactly he feels is just essential in this time. What is he asking for? He's asking for the loving kindnesses of God to come to him. The Hebrew word loving kindness, you probably know, is uh, the, the English word loving kindness is just our best uh, attempt to kind of sum up a Hebrew word that's kind of too big for our English words. It's kind of like the Old Testament version of the New Testament word, grace. And, you know, if someone says, well, define grace. One time I remember sitting across the table with Ricky Couples. And uh, this was just a few years ago, all right? And um, it, um, I think, yeah, it was after Miss Carol had passed away. And it was me and our, my youngest son, Andrew, who probably was, you know, like 15 at the time and nervous. And so we're having supper with Ricky at a restaurant just to spend time with him. And so we were talking about Christ. And Ricky looked at Andrew and goes, boy, what's grace? And I started to sweat because I thought, who knows what Ricky is going to accept here? And Andrew goes, God's riches at Christ's expense? He goes, no. And then he gave his own Ricky definition, you know, and I, I'm kind of like kicking Andrew like, we'll talk about this later, you know. That's an okay statement. But when you say, what's loving kindness mean? Well, the Hebrew word is chesed. What is it? Listen, it is something so much more than love. It is something so much more than a love that is so tender that it's loving kindness, you know, like, like a perfect parent toward a hurt child, it is a word that speaks of a contractual obligation. That, that is, 
There is a kind of love that God offers to His people from Genesis to Revelation that is not built on how needy you are and how pitiable you are or how well you've done or what you promise to do tomorrow morning if only God would hear your prayer. It is built on some bedrock foundation far deeper than that. It is built on God's self-obligating covenant. It is covenant love. So when the writer says, let your loving kindnesses come to me, he's not saying, God, can you stoop down and, you know, and kiss it and make it all better? You know, some sentimental picture. God, I have nothing to argue with. I lay aside the lesser arguments. God, I'm pleading with you. In spite of my inadequacies, in spite of my sin, in, in spite of the constant mocking and taunt, would you send to me those expressions of your covenanted love? God will not lie to us, but even better than that, God will not lie to His Son, to whom He has made so many promises about the believer. And so, in times when sorrows seem to just drown you, and you wonder if God even hears any prayer you make, I wouldn't waste time going to God telling Him how you, you will do better. I would just go straight to the greatest argument you have. God, you have obligated yourself in a way that none of us could. You initiated this. You loved us. You sought me. You made these promises. And you told your son things in eternity past. You will not break your word to him. Look at what he asks. Let these covenanted expressions of love come to me. And that is a really wonderful request. Many times in, in, in the psalm, he asks God to teach me, to guide me, to support me, to protect me. But this, I think, is one of my favorite requests. Let them come to me. Send in a way that is experienced, in a way that is felt and known, and not just a concept in my head, you must send me those covenanted, contracted loves. Every expression of the new covenant, everything you planned, everything Christ purchased, I'm asking you, March them down to my little life, to my room, to my prayer closet, to my children's bedroom, to my workplace, to our church, to my sin-stained conscience. Send them to me. Now we have to stop for a moment and handle an issue. When we hear the lies of the enemy against our God and against us, what do you do to hold steady as a Christian, to, to hold to the course? Well, there's two things. One, I would say, is just the baseline, the basic. And that is, like Abraham in Romans chapter 4, you do not let yourself let go of the written word of God, regardless of your experience, because it is the written word of your God. Abraham believed God when there wasn't anything on planet earth to make Abraham feel that God was in the process of keeping his word. It all looked like it was just talk, but it was just the talk of the I am who cannot lie. And so Abraham doesn't let go of the objective word of God, and that's where every Christian has to start. Do you remember Hebrews 11? That long list of faithful believers... But what does he say at the end of the chapter? All of these people that you admire, they held the course in times of suffering by believing what God said, even though not one of them received fully all that was promised. They all died with one thing in common. They didn't get everything. And so the writer of Hebrews says, without you, Christian, they can't have it. God is gathering in a great company as it completed it. And we will all come together and receive it. So there's that picture. 
The Christian holds to the written word of God even if everything in their life screams against it because God doesn't lie. And so that's your safety net. You know, that's where we start. But then there is this second thing. Verse 41. Send them to me. And I think that that is a picture of the plea that the believer might in this life now Will you let me taste and experience more of what's promised? Ephesians chapter 1, great doctrinal lesson. End of the chapter, Paul stops and say, in a sense and says, wait, before we go any further, I've got to do something. I've got to pray that God would make these truths yours in daily experience. It's not enough to have the great concepts. Then chapter 2, more wonderful things. Chapter 3, bigger picture, wonderful things. And then Paul interrupts himself again. Before I talk about how you're supposed to live, let me stop again and pray that you might know experientially what your brain can't measure, the love of God. So, A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers, said this. He noticed in his day, 1950s, that churches were filled with conservative, Bible-believing church members who were mistaken in thinking that the, the mark of mature faith was that you didn't need to experience any of it. It's, no, no, no. That's for like baby Christians. Immature Christians say, well, God, you say these wonderful things in the Bible, so can I have them? You know, can I taste them? Is it for today? And... Tozer said, well, there are a lot of Christians that are looking down on the hungry Christian and kind of with pity, they were like, oh, you're immature. The Christian lives by faith, not by sight. Well, that's true, isn't it? But when I read Paul, I don't see that. I see the Christian's faith grabbing hold of what God has provided and living on it. And there is the longing for something more than good words. So let me ask you, I think he's taken up an offering. Let me ask you. Oh, I got him in trouble. Let me ask you this. This is a good measure of where you're at as a believer. Would you honestly have to say that going to a church that helps you to get the right words, which is not easy and it's rare, but having the privilege of going to a church that takes the words of God carefully and the doctrine seriously, and they've taken time to teach you, and so you possess the right words, have you become complacent? And did you believe the lie from the enemy that that was all God expected you to have? How much of your doctrinal phrases are you presently tasting, living on? Saying to God, I thank you for orthodoxy. I thank you for the truths. I'm so grateful you've explained them in the scripture from every possible angle so that I can understand what Christ has provided. But Father, that isn't enough. How am I going to live for you if I don't have the substance of those words? Paul was so convinced that there was more than words to Christianity that when he talked about false teachers in Corinth, he said, I'm going to come back to Corinth, and when I show up in Corinth, I'm going to deal with the false teachers. Do you remember what he said? When I'm there, I will see not what they teach. I, will, I want to see their power. That sounds totally unlike what we would say. If you said to Jordan... Or your other pastors. I went, in, I went to a conference and they said some really crazy things about Jesus. And when I read the Bible, it, it doesn't match up. Jordan wouldn't say, oh yeah? Well, I'm going to go meet that guy and see what kind of power he's got. Jordan would say, what did he say? You know, show me the transcript. Let me listen to the sermon. And he would say, you're right. He used wrong words. Why does Paul, who cares about words, say power? Because Christianity isn't just the right words. There is in those words, when a man has the right words, and the Spirit of God is at work, and we're walking humbly with God, there is a power that is evident that is not, that is not in any other kind of life. Lies do not carry that power. 
So Paul basically says, I want to see if they're teaching the truth. And by the way, you can tell because the truth will have power to change. So we're asking God, send the covenanted expressions of your love and send, have them come to me now. Now let's look at the verse. It continues. And he says this. May your loving kindnesses also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. Look at one more thing before we look at the second half. Loving kindnesses, plural. And so it's not just loving kindness. I've been saying it wrong. Loving kindnesses. It would be like saying this to God. There are so many facets to Christ. There is such variable beauty. There is so much fullness so God, in order to shut the mouth of the mocking in my heart after this long period of sorrow after sorrow where, where you are being accused and I am tempted to join the accusation, God, would you shut the mocker's taunting lies by sending me, plural, every, every aspect of Christ's provision. Send them all. Everything that's appropriate for this life. Now, the second half of the verse is, is a Hebrew parallelism. Remember, you know what a parallel is, right? Kids, we have parallel lines like railroad tracks. They're, I keep doing this, you can't. Railroad tracks, so they run side by side and they stay equal distance from each other. A Hebrew parallelism is when in poetry, like the Psalms, a Jew would say one thing. And then he would repeat it, same basic truth, from a slightly different way to kind of give you a better grasp. So look at the second part of the verse. He says, and send or have come to me your salvation according to your word. Is he asking for something different? No. What it, when he says loving kindnesses, he's talking about that covenanted love. When he talks about it a second time, he just calls it salvation. I think one thing that's helpful there for all of us is this. This is not a really strong believer who can almost handle life's sorrows, but he just needs a little help. What he says is, I need those promised expressions of love, but I need it because it's going to have to rescue me. I am not in an okay position. It will have to, it will have to save me. It will have to deliver me, not just help me. Have you ever been there? Are you there now? When you try to love other people and as you reach out to them, you hear things, what sin has done in their lives. Like Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India, when she worked with the little children uh, who were horribly abused in the Hindu system and in her classic British understated way, here's how she described the horrific things that were happening. She said, I heard tales that darkened the sun. Ever heard them? Ever seen things that you think, I don't know that I could ever feel like the sun was shining brightly again after that. And so we cry out to the Lord and say, let it come to me. Send them to me. Save me. Now, we have to, before we close, we have to ask ourselves, are we being very realistic with this prayer? You know, are we just doing a name it and claim it? Okay, God, I'm going to quote this prayer at you and you got to do what I say. Well, there is a very helpful thing at the end of the verse. He says, send them to me, send this salvation to me according to your word. In other words, it is extremely important that the Christian pleads with the Lord based on what God has revealed in his word. There are places in the word of God that talk about sorrow. So you cannot go to him and say, why am I having a hard time? This doesn't make sense. I don't think this is the Christian life. Well, read your Bible. And there are times where it talks about God allowing you to, you know, to go through those times, to grow you and what he will do in using those hard times. And you need a full picture as you plead with the Lord. What are you asking for? Are you asking for things that God hasn't promised? That means you and I have to be pretty good Bible students. Are there chapters in the Bible, in some of those obscure books, 
that have words which you need right now to take to the king and plead. But you can't do it because you've never studied them. And so, I mean, you know, you know the common stuff. You know the stuff that always gets talked about. But you don't know what Nahum said about it. You don't know what Zephaniah said and Micah and 3 John. A man that wrote a commentary on Psalm 119 talked about the fact that this means we really have to be good students. And this is what he said. Let me get to it because, you know, I'd like jump nine pages ahead. Here's what he said. A general notion of mercy without a distinct apprehension of salvation, of the doctrine of salvation. These notions, he said, have their origin in presumption and not in faith. All right, so that's a kind of a com- complicated sentence. Going to God with kind of vague ideas that he's supposed to get you out of hard times because you go to church, without a clear view of what God has said in his word, it's not faith, it's presumption. What's the difference? Faith is always a response. So you see what God says is real, and then you respond appropriately to what God says. You don't come to God and say, I just think if I were a loving father and a great king, I would think you'd want to do this for me. So I'm going to, head, I'm going to ask that. That's presumption. So we study our word, the, the, our Bibles. We, we labor to understand these phrases and words, these verses. You know, we ask help of older Christians. We read the old writers who suffered greatly. And we make sure that we have a right interpretation of a verse And then, according to your word, we say to God, will you do this? Um, One great example of a person who used God's word, and then she talked about it later in talking to her son, was a lady named Monica. All right? Any of you met Monica? Actually, she, she died about 1,700 years ago, so, all right? Monica was the mother of an extremely famous church leader named Augustine. But Augustine was a brainy, handsome, arrogant, immoral young man. And he partied. And Monica was a Christian and she prayed for her playboy son. And he went on into adulthood living a wicked life. And she continued to pray. And finally God saved him and made him one of the most significant Christians since the New Testament. One time she explained to him how she prayed for him. She said, I brought God's handwriting back to him for you. In other words, she took the word of God and she pleaded for her son according to the word of God and not just what a mom might want to ask. We do that with people who say they'll do something for us. You know, they say they'll help. Can you help me on Saturday? I need to, yeah, yeah, I'll help. And then, you know, Friday, you shoot your friend a text. Hey, so 8 o'clock tomorrow is good? And they write, and they, what are you talking about? You know, you promised. And they go, I didn't promise. And then what do you do? You just shoot them a picture of their text. And they're like, uh, I promised. I'll be there. Now, God isn't like that. We don't have to use his word to make him be honest with us. But what a wonderful thing that the psalmist gives us this path in times of despair. Plead with the Lord. Send me the covenanted expressions of your love. Let them come. Shut the mouth of the taunting mock, a mocker and the doubts in my mind. And do it according to your word. The word of God guides what we ask for. The word of God gives us a clear understanding of Do we have a right to ask for it? Well, Christian, Peter writes and says, all this wonderful salvation, and then he says, yet while rejoicing in that, there are times, if necessary, you will go through hardships and tests and trials. What do you do during those times? Well, we go back and we are allowed to go into the prayer closet with the psalmist in Psalm 119 and you can use his words. What if you're not a Christian, though? 
I don't mean what if you're not a churchgoer, because you're all churchgoers. What if you are a person who is saying on the inside, I'm not rejecting Christ. I'm not denying that he's the son of God. Look, I'm holding him at what I feel is a safe distance. I don't want him here. I don't want him here now. I don't feel that I'm ready for that. I'm not ready for him to turn my life upside down. So you foolishly think that's a safe distance. You stay there. What a wonderful sinner's prayer for you in verse 41 and 42. You hear the gospel so often in your church, your parents, your spouse, maybe your kids tell you the gospel. And so you go to God and you you, you think, can I really risk it all on what Christ said? Is it worth it? And immediately the enemies just, there's, a, there's you know, an endless list of reasons why now is not a good time to risk it all and follow Christ. And you can come and use these verses when those doubts come. Oh God, may your covenanted kindnesses come to me. May your salvation, just like you described it in this book, come to me. And then I will have an answer too for the liar who taunts, who mocks, because I do trust your word. Well, may the Lord help us in those, you know, wintry times to gather gold, even if all we have is the moonlight, right? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would grab hold of our souls And give us all we need to greatly rejoice in Christ. Even though we don't see him. But we know him by faith. And we hold to what he says. But while we do that, God, we do ask. Would you send those realities, the substance of those doctrines. Would you send them to our home, our kitchens, our workplaces. God, our church building. For your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.